Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, and welcome in. We are uh, continuing in through our series on reading through the New Testament, and we got to start a new book, Gospel of John. It, what is it, May by now? So look at this, Gospel of John. We, it's only taken like month five to get into book four of the New Testament. So we're, we're cruising, man. This is great. Yeah. We should have all 27 books done by the year 2036. I was going to say by the time your daughter graduates college, it was probably by the time my kid graduates college. He's like <laughs> four and a half. So <laughs> cool. Gospel of John. It's an exciting book. Great book. What are some of the things that we want to start off like on a high note? What are some of the keys that our listeners may know, but haven't thought about, or maybe they don't know, or maybe they know, but they don't know they know it? (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Let's start kind of by jumping into the gospel of John. Then we'll kind of maybe go back after that and kind of look at some of the other beginning type stuff. One of John's favorite tools, I guess you might say, is misunderstanding. And what happens in misunderstanding is Jesus is going to make a statement that's going to be like ambiguous or maybe even metaphorical. And the person he's talking to is going to take Jesus' remark literally, showing that they just don't understand what Jesus is actually saying. Now, John's going to help us because John's going to go, okay, well, what he actually meant was this. So for example, in John chapter two, Jesus is asked, hey, what what sign do you have to do all these things? And Jesus said, you know, here's what I'm going to tell you. Verse uh, 19. Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John explains to us, verse 21 of John chapter 2, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So there you go. They take Jesus literally. It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. He was clearly talking about his own body, and John clarifies it for us. In John 3, another example, Jesus is meeting with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, you know, hey, uh, you must be a teacher from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. And Jesus said, you know, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter his mother's womb a second time. Can he? So again, misunderstanding. He takes Jesus literally. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Ah, okay. Misunderstanding. Then we go to John four. There's a woman in the well and Jesus meets her and he says, Hey, you know, give me a drink. First disciples are going to have to buy some food. And the Samaritan woman says to him in verse nine, she said, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? In verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And she misunderstands. And what does she do? Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And Jesus says of verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again, but that water will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. So constantly throughout the whole story, and you go to chapter six and Jesus says he has this bread from heaven to eat from. And they're like, what are you talking about? Uh, John seven, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus, where are you going? Of course we can come. Like, no, you don't understand where I'm going. This idea of misunderstanding is going to be unique to John. Kind of like just to put some, comparison there like when we talk about mark there was sandwiching that he yeah, would do right, right? yeah right uh, yeah it's so like every author has like kind of their own thing that would happen so for for john he's doing this misunderstanding motif what are some other things that might happen from a literary standpoint that john yeah does? so john also uses what we call irony 
And irony is where someone that Jesus is speaking to, or, or maybe one of his opponents, they make a statement about Jesus that they intend to be derogatory or maybe mm -hmm. sarcastic or something along those lines. But yet it's actually true way more than they actually realize. When John uses irony, John doesn't tell us what's really going on. Well, sometimes he might, but for the most part, John expects us to figure that out. Like, oh gosh, if they only knew what they were actually saying. So mm -hmm. for example, in John chapter 11, verse 47, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees got a council and they were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And we're like, yeah, exactly. All, everyone's <laughs> going to believe in him, right? And then they say, and the Romans will come away and take both away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. And you don't take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, then the whole nation should not perish. We're like, yeah, exactly. One person dies and then everyone's saved. John actually clarifies for us this time. He says, well, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Another example is in chapter seven. It says in uh, verse 25, some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. You're like, okay, wait a minute. Do you really know where this guy's from? Uh, and then they continue. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. So this guy can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. But the Messiah, we don't know where Messiah comes from. And then Jesus says, you know, you both know me and you know where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And so John doesn't clarify us for the irony because like Jesus saying, hey, guys, I'm from, a, you don't really know where I'm from. He just expects us to know that they're saying something and it's true way beyond what they mean, or, or actually they're wrong in this situation. They claim to know where Jesus is from, yet they actually refuse to accept the fact that he's from God. One last example, in chapter 19, Pilate brings Jesus out after having him beaten and bloodied. And he says, Eke homo, the famous Latin phrase, Eke homo, which means here is the man. And of course, what Pilate means by that is, look at this despicable person who's all beaten and bloodied. Have I beaten him well enough? But the reality is, yeah, Jesus really is the man, isn't he? Could we say the same thing? Like, I think it's, it would be in the trial settings where like the Jews are accusing him like, oh, he's committed blasphemy. He, he thinks he's the son of God. Yeah. Uh, like the same type of thing where it's like, yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, you know, they're making statements that, yeah, it's actually true what you're saying. And, and you're thinking it's actually a charge of blasphemy. Right. Okay. So going back to the beginning then, which is, in, in evangelical land, is there a more popular passage in something like a John 1, 1, right? right. Uh, especially like it's used as an apologetic when you're arguing against cult groups, which is, it's difficult because man, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's like, it seems so clear, but that is a difficult, there, yeah. there's so much there to unpack, right. right? Let's go back to the beginning of the book. There's a common approach to John that it's written much later than the synoptics. So we just finished the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those are very similar in terms of mm -hmm. how they're constructed. Lots of shared material in terms of the source that they're using. What's going on in terms of how we should understand John? Because that's just different. How, how do we relate yeah. it to the gospels how, or the synoptics? How do we not? What's different happening there? So we call them the synoptics, which means the sin and optics of so seeing together because Matthew, Mark, and Luke look so much the same as we discussed. 
that essentially marks the template for Matthew and, and Luke. Mm-hmm. And therefore they have a lot of things in common. John is radically different from Matthew, Mark. And Luke. It's almost as if, Hey, you guys told that story. Let me tell you a different one. And that actually helps us understand the fact that John seems to be writing much, much later. And in fact, as we'll discuss later on, that it appears that John knows that his audience already knows the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not going to repeat them because you already know those stories. So I'm going to tell you a kind of a supplemental version of the gospel of Jesus. So the first thing then is becomes, well, when was John written? And we usually understand the fact that it was written much, much later. In fact, almost all scholarship is going to be agreed that it was written later, depending on how late would be the, the key question. So again, if we put the death of Jesus in the year 30, and some say 33, but they're wrong, it's okay. The year 38, AD 30, the destruction of Jerusalem was in AD 70. So that's kind of a, the two key dates that we want to kind of have as a barometer. Jesus dies in the year 30, destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. I think that Mark was definitely written before 70, and Matthew and Luke somewhere around just either before or just after the year 70 AD. It appears that John might have been written as late as, you know, 90, anywhere from 85 to 95 AD. And one of the questions actually has to now be this, and that is, was there a conflict between John and his community or the Christian community and the Jewish synagogue and the Jews in the synagogues? And there was, but how great of a conflict was that? And it seems that, as we discussed before, that John and the Christian church did not believe themselves to be distinct from the Jews. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We are the true Judaism. We are the believing in Jesus who's the fulfillment of Moses, the fulfillment of Isaiah, the fulfillment of the scriptures. So they view themselves as, as true Jews. And the synagogues are, no, you guys believe something else. You worship on Sundays, not Saturdays. And there became this growing divide. That divide didn't probably formally happen until maybe the beginning of the second century. So after the death of John, the apostle and the writings there, but there may have been some conflict there. And that may help us understand the gospel of John also. We know, and this is just kind of a trivial note, but there's actually a discovery of a manuscript called, we call it Papyrus 52. Mm-hmm. So P52 that was written about the year 115, maybe 130 AD. And it's have five verses of John chapter 18. And you're like five verses, who cares? Actually, it's extremely significant. Mm -hmm, It's the mm -hmm. oldest manuscript that we have of anything in the New Testament. And because it's a five verse of the Gospel of John, it tells us that John had to have been written by 115. In fact, if it's a copy, then it had to have been written earlier than that. So again, that all suggests that John's certainly there late in in the first century. We have from the early church fathers, we call them the patristics, the early church fathers, that a testimony that John wrote late. He wrote after Matthew, Mark, and Luke and to complement their gospels, that he died early in the reign of Trajan, it says. And Trajan was the emperor from in the year 97 to 114. So if John dies early in the reign of Trajan, that puts his death around the year 100. So all this suggests that John was written somewhere in the 90s, no later than 97, 98 AD, to supplement or complement Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some people will, will go, well, well, if it's written 65 years after the events, there's no way it could be true. Or how could he you know, know these things? And my response is like, he didn't go, oh, you know what? 65 years ago, I think I remember this Jesus guy. He's been telling the Jesus story for 65 years. He's not going to forget it. I mean, he died and rose again. It's like, I kind of remember this really well. I was there. And I always kind of supplemented this. I, my great uncle was a World War II veteran. He was 27 years old when he enlisted in the British military He's from England. And 
he was captured, I think within six months of his enlisting. So three months of basic training, goes off to fight in the war. The war had already started in the early 1940s. And he was captured and he spent four years as a POW in Nazi Germany. Mm. 60, well, 50 some odd years later, 1990s, he's telling the stories of what happened to him. And trust me, he's telling you true stories because he's not going to forget. He wants to forget them. Mm -hmm. He has nightmares every night, like literally true nightmares. He met Hitler three times, by the way. He Mm. spoke to Hitler twice. That's another story for another podcast. And the reality is he, he can't forget these things. He wants to, but he can't. On the opposite side now, John's telling stories that he doesn't want to forget Mm -hmm. and that he's been telling for the last 55, 60 years or whatever. So the idea that it's unreliable because it's so much later doesn't make much sense. All right. So we love John's theology. I even mentioned this a few episodes ago where we find a new believer and we say, hey, read the gospel of John. And and we, you know, we just love John's gospel. And a lot of it is because of the obvious what we could call a high Christology, the viewing of Jesus. And so he has this very high view of Jesus as the son of God. Why do you think, you know, what's happening here with John? How does this, uh, just even this uh, popular understanding, I I wouldn't say it's popular, it's true, but how does this impact how we understand John's gospel going into reading the book? We're going to have to spend perhaps even an entire episode kind of really going through John chapter one, Mm because the first 18 verses of John chapter one, Mm -hmm. we call the prologue, the introduction. And there he's just this really deep, rich theology. What does the word glory mean? What does the word truth mean? John has these rich understandings there. And that's why it's kind of ironic that we tell a new believer, hey, go read the gospel of John. They read the first 18 verses. You're like, I have no idea what this is about. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly as the story goes on, it's revealing this high Christology, this high doctrine of Jesus. But it begins with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And you're like, okay, what is going on here? So what we know, of course, is the fact that obviously number one, first thing we say is John's clearly citing the, the book of uh, Genesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the beginning is a citation from the book of Genesis. And this word, and he tells us that the word's Jesus as we go on. So verse 14, the word became flesh. But the word was with God, and the word was God. And then ultimately in verse 18, the word has made the Father known. And then he goes on in chapter 5, that whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, you're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, well, I'm just doing what my dad does. And they're like, what? Yeah, well, my father works on the Sabbath, and so am I. <laughs> and you wonder why they crucified him. He says in John chapter 10 that the son and the father are one. And in chapter chapter 12, and actually in a few other places, he says that he only speaks what the father's told him to speak. That the son is in the father and that the father is in the son. And, and then he says on several occasions to know the son is to know the father or to love the son is to love the father or to honor the son is to honor the father. So there's clearly this high theology of Jesus and his identity with God. Mm-hmm. But what I think we do too often with that is that we make the gospel, oh, about proving that Jesus is God, as you kind of commented earlier, we kind mm-hmm. of used John as our weapon against the cultic groups in our neighborhoods and who deny the deity of Jesus and the person of Christ and the Trinity. And okay, sure, John's a good place to go, but obviously the reality is John's so deep in his theology that I'm not sure the people we're speaking to understand exactly what we're saying anyways. Mm-hmm. But the significance of that is not so much the deity of Jesus or that Jesus is God, but the fact that Jesus was sent from God and those he's God in the flesh in order to accomplish the mission of God or the purpose of God. And that's something that we're going to have to unpack as we proceed. Yeah. And right there, like 
like I love Trinitarian theology. I, like those things are so important. But when we're only looking at certain books to prove a theological point, we oftentimes can miss the point that the author is trying to make. Yeah, exactly. Because that's that, that might not be the thing that he was trying to prove. I, I, I remember the first time I ever had an example of this. It's actually jumping into Philippians. But in seminary, I did we could choose any passage from the, you know, the mm-hmm. second part of the New Testament and write a paper on it. So I'm like, great, I'm I'm going to write on Philippians 2 and prove how this is all about the deity of Jesus and all that. And I did this paper and I turned it in and the prof kind of wrecked me on it because <laughs> he's like, uh, you great. You did this theological paper in a biblical studies class about the deity of Jesus. You missed the whole part about him being yeah. a servant and how we're supposed to do the same. I, I went into my PhD thinking, well, maybe I'm going to do my PhD on the sola scriptura and the mm-hmm. Bible and, and as Protestant doctrine, right. And, and went to second Timothy. So all scriptures inspired by mm-hmm. God. And okay, there you go. This is it. The scripture alone. And then I came to realize that's actually not the point of the passage, mm-hmm. you know, right? Because I thought, well, I'm going to prove that Second Timothy is focusing on this. Uh, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, rebuking, mm-hmm. correcting, and training in righteousness. So man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There you go. We can be thoroughly equipped for every good work by the scriptures alone. That's it. And I actually ended up doing my thesis, my master's thesis on Second Timothy and found out that's actually not the focal point of Second Timothy or, mm-hmm. or even the focal point of that, actual, of that text. So, mm-hmm. so. Let's look then and maybe start looking at John in terms of some of the questions that he might be answering and some of the, the conversations that he's going to be entering into. So first, we, we recognize you did in your opening, John is a Jew, and yeah. so he, he views himself as part of the Jewish tradition still in Second Temple Judaism. So what's the relationship between John and Judaism of that time? Because it seems like everything that John does is putting Jesus against the Jewish feast, especially in the first part of the book, yeah, uh, those right, first yeah. like 11 chapters. Yeah, very much. So we've commented before many times now that we read the Bible through the lens of Jesus as our savior. And he came to fulfill God's promises as savior and to save us from our sins. So we can go to heaven when we die. And that just trivializes the story and kind of misses so much. And actually, I think it creates all kinds of problems for Christian uh, living and discipleship as well. And, but we noted in our podcast that the Gospel of Matthew says Jesus came to fulfill the story of Israel, and there's five sermons in the Gospel of Matthew because Moses wrote five books, and there's five fulfillment passages in chapters one and two. Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel, and then Luke begins with, these things were fulfilled among us, and of course, he's portraying Jesus as this new King David by fulfilling the promises in Samuel, and the Gospel of Mark opens up with citations from Isaiah chapter 40, saying the exile is over, and the kingdom of God's here, and so the Gospel of John now is going to pick up on those kind of themes, but take it in another level. First off, we noted that John 1.1 begins with creation language in the beginning. So the first three words are the same as the beginning of the book of Genesis. And if you look carefully, there are seven days in John chapters 1 and 2. And so he has this creation week. And he may even have another creation week at the end of the Gospel of John. And we'll look at that later. Uh, 80% of the narrative of the Gospel of John is focused in Jerusalem, though. That's what's really intriguing now. John really stresses Jerusalem. Remember Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't even enter Jerusalem until Mark chapter 11. That's the mm-hmm. first time he's ever been there. If we didn't have John's gospel, we think, oh, Jesus like finally shows up in Jerusalem and then he goes there and dies. And it's John's gospel, we realize actually he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem and was in and out of the city. And so what John's going to do now is he's going to say, look, the figures and institutions of Judaism are fulfilled in Jesus. So, for example, he's the new temple, as we mentioned already, John chapter 2, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Uh, in John 5, he's the one about whom Moses wrote about. 
In John 6, he's the true bread from heaven. Uh, we know that he's, of course, the son. In John 15, he says, I am the vine, which is this tree of life imagery. By the way, the word vine, uh, tree, vine, bush, it's all one word in Hebrew. So I'm the vine. Uh, I'm the tabernacle. I'm really strange. In John 3, I'm the serpent in the wilderness that Moses lifted up and said, if you look upon the serpent, you'll, get, you'll, you'll be saved or you'll be healed. So, and so you just walk through John 2. He's the wine that replaces the water of Judaism. He's the true temple in John 2. He's the great teacher in John 3 over Nicodemus. He's the source of living water in John 4. He heals and works on the Sabbath like the Father does in John 5. He's the true bread from heaven in John 6. He's the true water in John 7. He's the true light of the world in John 8. So you're like, okay, this is clearly the institutions and festivals or figures of Judaism are being fulfilled in, in Jesus. But he even goes beyond that because in John 15, he becomes the lamb. As I mentioned, he's the mm-hmm. vineyard and the people are the vines. And obviously most significantly, which we'll spend a lot of time on, he's the true temple of God. Yeah. And, and we could also look at how he's connected to the feast of booths in John yeah. chapter seven, or and like the, there's yeah. the Hanukkah motif in John chapter 10. And uh, yeah. there's pa- a couple of Passover stories in there. So you just, there's so much that's connected yeah. there. I know when I was teaching through this a couple of years ago in a Sunday school class, all of the sudden, some of the passages in something like a chapter seven or 10, uh, you know, I am the light of the world or, or the living water motifs that happen. Those only really make sense if you understand the way the festivals worked in the first century and, and how Jesus was contrasting himself with what the people were celebrating anyway. Going back to your point about sola scriptura, one of the misunderstandings that Protestants have is that they actually don't believe in sola scriptura. They believe in solo scriptura. They yeah. believe that, no, it's just the Bible that you need. Well, if you only have the Bible and you don't understand from other sources what's happening in the first century, you won't be able to make sense of a lot of John because you're only making sense of that in light of uh, these extra festivals and activities that start in that in that period of time between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period. All right, so we've talked a little bit before about the role of numbers in the Bible and how biblical authors are using numbers in a symbolic kind of way. Does John do this at all? Yes, and a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is important just to point out because when we get to the book of Revelation and start pointing this out, you're going to go, oh, you know, you're just making this up because this is just something in the book of Revelation. It's like, actually, it's all over the the biblical story, like Mm -hmm. everywhere in the biblical story. Mm -hmm. So in the gospel of John, of course, we have seven days in the first two chapters, and we'll point those out uh, later on. And there's seven witnesses. There's, There's John there's Jesus, there's Moses, there's the Father, there's the Spirit, there's the disciples, and then there's John the the evangelist, the writer of the gospel. There are seven signs, and this one's actually a little tricky. We know there are seven signs. Six of them are specifically called signs, the wine at Cana in chapter two, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter four, the healing of the lame man in chapter five, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six, the healing of the blind man in chapter nine, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, that's six. Now, the resurrection of Jesus has to be the seventh one, but when he rises from the dead, it's not called a sign, mm-hmm. but in chapter two, it was a sign. You know, what sign are you going to have mm-hmm. to prove to who you are? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. So there, there's seven there. What's interesting is that actually there's nine miracles. He walks on water in chapter six, and he has this great haul of fish in chapter 21, but neither time were they called signs. And again, Why? because the author knows there's seven signs and I'm only going to call them signs uh, seven times. Mm -hmm. There's seven I am sayings. And actually there's two different types of seven I am sayings. 
There are seven times he says, I am, and then he finishes it with the bread of life. I am the, the, the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. There's also seven times where Jesus simply says, I am, which is perhaps an allusion to the divine name. He says, I am, and he doesn't finish it. And your Bible translations might say like, I am he. Uh, so the absolute I am sayings, of course, declare Jesus' divine identity. Uh, this is Richard Bauckham's brilliant understanding. And anything by Richard Bauckham is phenomenal. And almost everything I'm going to say in these podcasts is going to come from Richard Bauckham. So I'll just mm. give him the credit like right now. But he says the seven times that Jesus says, I am, just blank I am, affirm his divine identity. Well, the seven times he says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, declare what his work that he has done and, and how it gives us eternal life. So very significant to count these things. John's clearly wanting us to count them. And uh, numbers have, especially the number seven has very significance, has, has great significance in the gospel of John. Yeah. Let's go back to what you were saying you earlier. And so you use the word signs. Uh, it's interesting because John does not use the word miracles at all, mm -hmm. even though all these miraculous things are happening. It, it's, it's probably because a sign is, it's, it's not merely a miracle. It's not right. just this awesome thing. It's not merely that Jesus kept the party going and made the wine. Like that's a miracle, but something else is happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gary Burge, the New Testament scholar says that signs point to an awareness of what's happened and why. Uh, more specifically, we'd say, you know, signs reveal his glory. The first miracle that Jesus does in John chapter two, it says in verse 11, this is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So the signs of Jesus show an awareness of what's happening and the transcendent nature of it. It's not just a miracle. It's signifying something, something greater than this. He multiplies the bread because he's the bread of life. So it's not just a miracle. Like, hey, this dude can multiply bread. It's like, no, he can multiply bread because he's the bread of life. The other thing about the miracles, of course, is that they're more than just miracles. They're, they're phenomenal things. And John specifically identifies the miracles of Jesus or the signs of Jesus and the magnificence of them. So he doesn't just turn water into wine at Cana. There were six jars of water that contained 20 to 30 gallons. And it's, it's a massive amount of water. Mm -hmm. When he heals the nobleman's son in John chapter four, the son was at the point of death. And then he says, and he recovered at the hour that Jesus spoke. When he heals a lame man, a lame man in John chapter five, the guy was ill for 38 years. In John six, when he feeds the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. When he heals the blind man, uh, the man was born, was born blind. And by the way, I've heard Jewish people say that this is the best miracle to point out to a Jewish reader hmm. because... There were miracle workers in the ancient world. There are miracle workers today. They do these things and whatever we might explain how they might, might've been done, but no one had ever caused a person who was born blind to see. Hmm. When we get to the book of revelation, the church, the city of Laodicea had an, had invented an eye salve that reversed the effects of blindness, hmm. but only for people who had originally been able to see and had, had started losing hmm. their sight. So Jesus heals a man who was born blind. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he had been dead for four days. And we'll probably talk about that episode, but the Jewish will believe that you can come back from the dead within the first three days. After three days, your soul had left your body and coming back from the dead was actually now impossible. Yeah. Like your spirit's going to be hovering around the dead body. So yeah. Well, because they had to have a way of explaining how people that they were had said that guy's dead. And then 12 hours later, he's alive. Uh oh, mm -hmm. 
we would say that you misdiagnosed them. Yeah. But they didn't have the medical ability to know. So they thought, well, he's really dead, but he came back. How did mm-hmm. that happen? Oh, maybe your soul hovers around for three days. Cause after three days, no one has ever come back from the dead. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus raised his Lazarus from the dead, he had been dead for four days. The resurrection of Jesus, of course, was the seventh sign is he raised himself, you know, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. It's like, that's pretty phenomenal. So the, the miracles of Jesus are not miracles in the gospel of John. They're signs because they manifest his glory and they show the magnificence of what he's doing. And the significance of his ability to do these things is because he is, well, he's the resurrection and the life. That's how we can raise Lazarus from the dead. You know, we've been kind of laying down the foundation, a lot of deep stuff for John. And, and it seems like right off the bat, we're laying kind of a, a foundation for how to read it. And it's like, man, if there's all this stuff to look for, and there's these intricacies in terms of how John constructed, why is this the book we always tell new Christians to read first? Yeah. So I'm, I think I would agree with you a little bit earlier in previous podcasts. Like, I'm not sure why we do that. It's not the best place to go because you can tell that a beginning reader is going to miss almost everything that we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. They're not going to understand why they're called signs. They're not going to understand the significance of misunderstandings or ironies or the theology of the word becoming flesh, the significance of all that. And Jesus as the person of God, the son who is sent by the father. But there is this great stress in the gospel of John and this individual response. And that's probably why we send people to go to the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the problem with that is when Jesus appeals to an individual response, or when John writes his gospel saying, look, I want you to respond as an individual, it's because he's trying to appeal to the individuals most likely in the synagogues who are still kind of holding out on joining this Jesus movement. And he's not appealing to them as individuals like, hey, you individually need to be saved as an individual, as we modernists think of individuals, but as an individual being drawn into the, our community, in other words, away from your community and into our community, because our community is the true community of God's people. So if we knew the setting better, we might be able to answer that more thoroughly, but we think perhaps that this is probably what's going on. It's this, it's this conflict with the synagogue and saying, look, your Jewish identity is not enough. You now need to come to Jesus, who is the one of whom Moses was writing about. And therefore that personal call of individual call of joining the Messiah and the Messiah's kingdom. So in John's gospel, then this Jewish identity is not enough. So in John 11, there's this stress on gathering the people into one. And we read the passage earlier, but in 11, 51 and 52, it says, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, this is referring to Caiaphas, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And you can see how John might be using that to reach to his Jewish audience in the synagogues locally. In John 17, of course, there's this great prayer. Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. So yeah, there's this great stress on individualism that we'll look at later, but that individualism is being drawn into the community of God's people. So it would be a combo of personal choice plus corporately being drawn into God's people. Yeah. The distinction that I think that we're trying to make is that the individualism of Western modern world is it's all about me you know mm-hmm. you see the slogan on tv commercials not you know you do you yeah it's yeah. like seriously no don't do you because doing you means you're neglecting everyone else mm-hmm. and the reality is we need one another whether it's mm-hmm. in a family setting or that's in a communal setting the reality is i can't survive if you don't harvest the weed 
it's a communal thing. And, you know, you look at the biblical story, of course, Adam and Eve, when they sin, they realize, oh, we're not one any longer. We're naked. Mm -hmm. They were so unified in their oneness, they didn't even recognize the distinction between them. So yeah, you have this invitation of Jesus to follow me, which is reiterated throughout the gospel of John, especially in chapter one. And that's this great invitation, follow me. And then you have, you know, Jesus telling Nathaniel later on in chapter one, come and see. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we tell a new believer to read the gospel of John. Yeah, follow me and come and see. But when we stop and uh, apply that to this modern, strictly Western individualistic sense, I think that's where we go wrong. So really briefly then, in the Gospel of John, and this is why we tell people to read the Gospel of John, you have, Richard Balcom says, 67 times this invitation about a personal relationship with Jesus. So you have Jesus saying, the one who, and then fill with like the one who believes, or the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And that occurs 37 different times. Then you have 14 different times, you have a phrase where it says like, if, if anyone and then if anyone keeps my word, or if anyone hears my words, 12 different times, you have a, a phrase where it'll be translated something like everyone who, for example, who looks to the sun and believes in him will have eternal life, or everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And then you have a phrase like whoever drinks of this water I give will never thirst again. And that occurs one time. And then three different times you have the phrase, no one, no one can come to me unless the father draws them. No one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you have this great stress on individualism, but of course, I would say not in the modern Western sense, but in the sense of being drawn corporately there. So not in the sense of this idea of it's just me and God, or it's not yeah. about religion, it's a relationship, it's about my personal relationship. Is that overstressing of the vertical? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I would say two things to that. I think that's very well stated. There's two problems here. Number one is that when we read the, the Gospels as light, in light of this personal appeal to commit to Jesus and stress the I, it can lead to long-term unhealthy and, and dangerous thinking, and especially the idea that we don't need the church and we don't need the community of God's people. And secondly, it neglects the Jesus-centeredness of the Gospel story. Anyways, I'm blown away that the call of the Gospel is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And yet we've made the gospel, you need to get saved and repent of your sins so that you can become saved and you can mm -hmm. go to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. And there's only this, it's like, well, the Jesus thing is important for you to be forgiven of your sins, but Jesus is left out of that story. And it's radically, it's actually the counter of the gospel. It's not, mm -hmm. as long as it like not the gospel, it's the very opposite of the gospel. And I'm not saying that people don't get saved mm -hmm. when they repent of their sins and come to Jesus so they can go to heaven when they die. But if we stop there, yeah, that's not really the gospel. Yeah, and even going into, you know, you had mentioned Second Timothy that you had hung out in to yeah. prove sola scriptura. Going to First Timothy, it makes me think of, you know, th chapter three, where it talks about how it's the household of God. It's the yeah. church who are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, yeah. And so it's like, it takes this, it's this community of people. It's not merely individualism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In First Corinthians 12, that we need, one another mm -hmm. uh, as members of the body of Christ to thrive together. Because if you know, you're an eye and you're a hand, well, yep. we can't get along without one, without, without the other. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, cool. Any, uh, I don't know, as we kind of wrap up the intro, you know, this opening to John, 
Any other thoughts? Any other things? Yeah. So obviously we have a lot of work to do to really understand this book more than I think the, the synoptics uh, more than anything. But I think we've left out two things that we want to make sure we focus on in, in the weeks to come. First off, the Holy Spirit is central to the gospel mm-hmm. of John. And I would make the claim, I think it's certainly an exaggeration, but it's an exaggeration or an overstatement to kind of make a point. I would make the claim that the Holy Spirit is just as central to the gospel of John as Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like, what are you talking about? But actually, if you look from chapter 12 and especially 13 onward, the yep. focus is the spirit. It just mm-hmm. is. I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another counselor. Everything from those chapters on is about the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus going away. Now, certainly we still have the cross there. So it is an overstatement, but mm-hmm. it's an overstatement to make a point. Yeah. The second thing I'd say is that the gospel of John is missional. Mm-hmm. And we miss this part of it, especially when we make the gospel of John or the gospel story about you getting saved and you coming to know Jesus and you believing in the right things. But we have to recognize that the gospel of John is missional. So in Luke, when he wrote the gospel of Luke, he planned on writing this acts also. So he, he had this addendum all along this, Hey, I'm going to send you out and you guys are going to go out and do these things. And the gospel of John kind of adds that addendum without writing an extra book to John chapter 20 and 21. And the whole idea of it was, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you the spirit. And then he's going to send you out and you're going to be empowered by him to go out and be the people of God that I've called you to be. So it's not just Jesus fulfilling the mission of the father, but then Jesus sending the spirit so that he might indwell God's people and that they might then go out and fulfill the mission. Mm-hmm. What's your perspective on reading John split up into book of signs versus book of glory? Yeah. So the idea is that first 12 chapters of the book of signs and then 13 on is the book of glory. Yeah. And that's fine. I'm not certain that John constructed his gospel wanting us to make that divide there. So it's an mm-hmm. artificial divide that we've added, which is fine. Cause it just helps us understand that. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that you can't separate the two that well, because of course, one of Jesus' signs name in the resurrection is in the book of glory. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the signs reveal his glory. And that's Burge's point, I think, in his yeah. work is that the the signs point to the ultimate sign in yeah. the book of glory. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. This is exciting. I, I think what I'm most excited about is just as in the, uh, I would say, especially in the Luke series, mm. where it kind of reframed the entire gospel. And I don't, mm. I don't know if we're as, you know, as an American evangelical church if we're as familiar with luke as we are john we're probably very familiar with john but with luke we were able to kind of just look at it with new glasses on Mm -hmm. that's my hope for the gospel of john where we could say hey people could come away with this just having a completely different way of looking at it's literally like putting on a new prescription and saying i'm going to read this book that i'm very familiar with but in a different light and it's not that we're denying that a lot of the things are there that we might be familiar with. Right. It's just, is it actually, is it only saying what we think it is right. or is, is it, it actually way bigger than that? And is it telling a way bigger story? Right. And I think it, it becomes one of those wizard of Oz things where you open up the door and now it's like, Oh, it's in color. Oh my word. <laughs> what is happening? I guess, should we say, Oh my word, if we're talking about John, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's just this, it's this other thing where there's all this other light and there's so much more depth to the story than we might've seen before. Awesome. Any last words from you, Rob? What am I about to die? <laughs> do, I, do I get a last meal? I mean, can I have a meal before I we get have the priest words? coming to do your final like, rites? Okay, I want manicotti, right? <laughs> manicotti, a chocolate chip cookie on uh, uh, ice cream, and uh, it would have to be pizza, pizza, right? 
like no no i want manicotti so like your last meal you're like okay i'm not doing an entree i just want desserts no i want manicotti and then i want my dessert okay okay and then i'll tell you what my last words are (laughs) but not before then because i'm trying because if i give my last words now you might not give me that meal (laughs) how's that for expressive individualism yeah that's right (laughs) whatever all right anyone come back next week and we'll have uh... (laughs) (laughs) i'll leave it in (laughs) all right Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.